again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. For children, the worst part about Christmas is the waiting, making Christmas Eve the longest night of the year. Waiting isn't new to God's people, and we know it's worth it in the end. Teaching team members Caleb Click and Jeff Norris joined lead teacher Randy Pope for this special Christmas Eve message. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Christmas, everyone. We're glad you're here with us at Perimeter this afternoon. When the curtain goes up in the first chapter of Luke's Gospel, uh, it's not into the world that we imagine for the Christmas story. Uh, It's not a world of peace and joy and hope and love. Uh, There's no smiling Santa Claus. There's no tinsel. There's no lights. It's not families gathered around a Christmas meal. Instead, what you see It's a world of pain and brokenness and sorrow that is desperately waiting for the redemption that only God can bring. And Luke, in those few verses that were just read, he doesn't give you a lot of details, but the details he does give, they're pregnant ones. They're words that invite us to look at a world that's just like our own, a world that has been ravaged by sin, and it brings us face to face with a man who feels that brokenness in his very bones. It says in verse 5 that this took place in the days of King Herod, king of Judea, and in those days there was a priest named Zechariah. He's a priest who comes from a family of priests who is married to a woman named Elizabeth who is also descended from priests, and they don't just have a good religious pedigree. This is a family that, as Luke makes very clear, this is a family that loves the Lord. They're righteous before God. They've been blameless in keeping his commandments. They have followed him with every single thing that they possess. And yet this family, despite all their faithfulness, despite all their zeal, despite all their love, they are missing one thing that they want more than almost anything else. They have begged and prayed and waited for one thing from the Lord, and it is one thing that they have never received child. And after years of waiting, Luke tells us that this family, they have grown old, and while they are still waiting, they no longer have much hope that that child is ever going to come. And what we see in Zechariah is just a little picture of what Israel's feeling too. Israel's had all these promises, these promises of God of a redemption that would one day come through their people. This promise to Abraham that he would bless Israel and through them he would bless every single one of the nations. Promises to Isaiah and to all the prophets of a day when God himself would come to dwell in the midst of his people and they would see him face to face even as Adam and Eve saw him in the garden. Promises to David of a king who would come from his line. A king who would sit on his throne and would never leave it who would bring a kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace that would never end, a king who would redeem and restore every single broken thing. And 400 years before these words are penned and these events happen, it looks for a moment as though all those promises are about to come true. Israel has been restored from exile. God has brought them back from the land of Babylon and he has placed them again in the land of promise. 
the temple where God himself dwelled that the Babylonians had destroyed, that temple has now been rebuilt. And it looks as though all the lines have come together and the moment has come when the Messiah will finally emerge and redemption will finally be theirs. But what we discover in the first chapter of Luke is that 400 years later, Israel is not living in the days of the promise. They're living in the days of Herod. And God's people, instead of being a people who bless the nations, they're a people oppressed by the nations. They've been defeated by the Persians, by the Greeks, by the Egyptians, and now they're ruled by the Romans. There are people who have a temple, and it's a beautiful one, a glorious one, but it is a temple that is missing the one thing that set the temple that Solomon built apart from all the others in the world. It is missing the presence of God in its midst. The presence that filled Solomon's temple, it has never filled this one. And so when the priests go in and out with their sacrifices, they go into an empty building in which there is nothing inside. They have a king, but he's not the king promised to David. He's not even a Jewish king. He's a man named Herod, a man the Romans have appointed, a man who is so protective of his throne that he massacres the entire family of a rival dynasty who would also lay claim to that throne and kills not just that family and that dynasty, but even murders his own wife and his two sons because he thinks that they too might be a threat to his throne. You know, if you've ever wondered what kind of a king would order the massacre of every male child under two, simply because he heard the whispers of a king born of the line of David on the lips of a couple of wise men, it would be a king who kills his own wife and children. This kind of king. That's the world of the Christmas story. It's a world of pain and brokenness and sin where for 400 years God's people have waited and begged and prayed for God to come. Even as Zechariah and Elizabeth have waited and begged and prayed for a child, and for 400 years, God has given them seemingly no response. Only the words of promises written down long ago of a redemption that one day would come, but a redemption that they have yet to taste. And so just like us this Christmas Eve, they wait for the redemption that only God can bring, a redemption that they are wondering if it will ever come. So you just heard from Caleb that Israel waited for a long, long time, 400 years of silence, hearing nothing from God. This long-awaited Messiah, this king who had been promised long ago, but they were waiting and waiting and waiting, wondering, would he ever come? And so here we are in Luke chapter 2. We enter into the story, finding ourselves on this starry, clear night in this forgotten, fairly unassuming little town of Bethlehem. And there's this teenage girl who's pregnant, and she's been rejected by those around her, 
because they perceive her to be pregnant out of wedlock. But she's getting ready to give birth to a baby boy who would know rejection on a far greater level than she ever would. And nevertheless, this baby is born and he is named Jesus, just as he said it would be by the angel. And finally, the long-awaited Messiah has come and a weary world rejoices, kind of. Did they even notice? Did the world take note of what happened? Could there be a more unassuming, unnoticed, stealthy birth than what we see here in Luke 2? I mean, we're, we're talking about a stable with animals. And when you hear stable, I don't want you to picture uh, a wooden structure that, like my nativity set in my home and probably like yours and yours, uh, your home, it looks like a barn. I want you to picture something more like this, this picture here that we have of a cave. This is an actual cave that still exists today just outside of Bethlehem. Um, is it the cave where Jesus was born? Who knows? But that's a shepherd's cave, as they call it. A cave that would have been very common in Jesus' day where the animals would have been held. If you'll notice, there's soot on the ceiling where the shepherds and caretakers over the years, over the centuries, have burned fires in these caves to stay warm in the winter season, much like the shepherds of Jesus' day. This is where the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the long-awaited Messiah, something like this setting is where he was born. And it occurs to me, perhaps to you, why this, this Son of God, the Prince of Peace himself, wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, the long-promised one, why there? Can you imagine the stench that would have been present as Mary and Joseph shared this little space with the animals? Can, can you imagine the pain and the indignity of Mary to give birth, not in the comfort of a home, not in an inn, not in a bed, but on a stone-cold floor of a cave. But the reason why Jesus came in that way, the reason the Son of God came in such a lowly manner was because that setting was the most appropriate setting for what would be representative of his whole life, of what he came to do, of the king that he came to be. Instead of being born in an opulent and clean palace, he chose rather to be born in a, in a filthy and forgotten cave. He came to be a servant, a king who didn't come for the clean or the put together, but he came for those who know that they are broken and know their own filth. Marred by the sin of their own hearts, Jesus came to shoulder the stench of our sin and rescue us through his righteous life, through his sacrificial death and through his unimaginable resurrection. This is a king who came to walk among the filthy, to care for the filthy, to love the filthy, to, to rescue the filthy, to rescue me, to rescue me from myself from the sin that is so deep within me, I sometimes don't even realize that it's there, the very sin that separates me from God. Jesus came to reconcile. And so the Messiah came, and the world did rejoice, maybe not initially, but here we are today, and we are rejoicing 
over this king, the son of God who came. But I don't want you to miss something, something very significant, something very important. And that is, yes, he came. And he came to rescue us from our sin. And all the praise and all the honor and all the glory that we could ever muster is more than appropriate. And we will sing and sing and sing his praises. But did you know that we are waiting too? We still wait. Yes, he came and he ushered in this kingdom, but not fully. You see, now we taste We taste, just think of like little morsels of food that we get to taste now of the kingdom of Jesus. But we don't dine, at least not fully, not yet. The same God who promised the Israelites all those centuries ago that there would be a king who would come to rescue from their sins is the same God, the same God who now has come and has promised that he will come again. But not just to rescue us from our sins, but to make all things new, all broken and shattered and marred things put back together into their proper place and all for his glory. Although Christ is bringing his work to bear daily among us, I don't have to tell you this, we live in a world that's still broken. He's slowly putting things back together first in our hearts and then through us, the church, into the world around us. But we know we still live in a world of disease and sickness and cancer and disappointment and broken relationships and divorce and strife and pain and heartache and suffering and death. And so we wait. We rejoice in the kingdom that has come, but we wait in eager anticipation for the fullness of that kingdom to come when Christ comes again. And listen, don't miss this. When he comes again, it will be unlike the first time he came. It will not be unassuming and it will not be unnoticed. He will come in honor and he will come in splendor and he will come in great might and power. And the world, the whole world will see his coming and those who have believed upon Christ will rejoice and it will be a beautiful coming of King Jesus yet again. And so this is Christmas. The story of Christmas is, it's a both and. It's a a looking back and remembering of his first coming and rejoicing and all that meant for a people reconciled and redeemed unto God through Jesus, his son. But it's also, it's also this glorious anticipation of his coming again when he will make all things new and make all sad things come untrue. All for the glory of Jesus. And so we say as his people, we say as the church, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you saw fit to see us in our filth and in our sin and to come and rescue us through your son Jesus. To come and live the the perfect life that we could not live and die the death that we should have died, the, the penalty of sin itself. You bore that for us on the cross and we will be forever indebted to you and grateful and praising your name. For it was your grace by which we are saved. Nothing of ourselves, not of our works, but of you, King Jesus, your work on our behalf. Your resurrection, your victory over death is those of ours who faith and trust is in you is our victory over death. And so we rejoice and give thanks for what you have done, but we look forward 
this Christmas season, oh God, to the work that is still yet to be done by you, Jesus. So we look for your return and we wait with eager anticipation. Be blessed, oh God, as we continue to worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, according to the Christian calendar, uh, this is the ending of what's called Advent. You notice the candles behind us, and we have the Christ candle yet to be lit that I'll light in just a, a few minutes. Uh, but uh, many don't even understand what Advent is even, well, what the word means. It actually means to come. It's a Latin word, but, but it actually carries the idea of expectation and waiting. So you've been hearing us talk about waiting and waiting and waiting. Uh, Caleb talked about the Israelites. They're waiting for Messiah to come. And Jeff talked about how, how then Christ comes, but there's still a waiting. It's a, it's a waiting for Christ to return a second time. So with that understanding of waiting, you really look at the whole of Scripture, and God's people have forever been told that we should eagerly await, and that's Advent. It's waiting. My question is, how many of us understand what does it mean to wait? I mean, I guess if you do nothing, you're waiting. I mean, what other options do we have? And so certainly that's not what we're admonished to do. It's, it's to eagerly wait something to take place. And I think to understand that and make it very, very practical, we got to answer a few questions. And so four questions, uh, just a, a minute or two each, I think should give us the understanding at least from where to go from here. The first question that I would ask is this, why do Christians fail to eagerly wait? I mean, let's be honest, how many of us as Christians say, you know, it's been on my mind a lot recently, just how I'm just waiting for Jesus. The real, reality is most of us don't even think he's coming in our lifetime. Some say they do, but if you ask them, do you think he's coming tomorrow? No, probably not. Tomorrow, do you think he's coming tomorrow? Probably not. And so there's not this, this waiting where we really expect him to come at any given time. What does it mean? Well, I, I think that there's a reason why so many people really are not waiting, and I think it's because we don't have any hope. We just don't have hope that he's coming back. Uh, it reminds me of a picture that one of my children took a, of their child, my, a grandson, and it's a rainstorm, and uh, here's all these puddles of water, and, and he's got his fishing line, his pole with his line, and it's, it's sitting in the puddle, and he's there fishing in the puddle. How long do you think that's going to last? I mean, he's going to get frustrated and say, I don't know, I'm not sure about this. Well, that's kind of where Christians are today about waiting. I, I don't know, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'm sure he's coming back, but... Probably not in my lifetime, and so forth and so on. I'm going to suggest that there is that gap, you've often heard it, the gap between expectation up here and reality down here, and the gap in between is called frustration. And that's where many of us land. Regarding waiting, wrong expectations lead to frustration about life, but also about God. There are a lot of us here that would be saying, I'm frustrated with God. And that has to do a lot with our expectation about the present right now. Just the present. Paul Tripp, a great, one of my favorite authors, in his little book, uh, New Morning Mercies, uh, he talks about how we expect today the present to be a comfortable destination. It's not supposed to be, it's bad expectation. He goes on to say what it really is, 
It's an uncomfortable preparation for a comfortable destination, which is what Jeff was talking about when Christ comes back. But the present is not designed to be comfortable. Though today, what do we do as Christians even? Well, we expect that this should be a comfortable this should be a comfortable destination, and so my relationships should be good and enjoyable and loving, and my finances should be abundant, and my health should be excellent. And then when those things don't happen, we're shocked. It's like, why is this happening to me? This shouldn't be taking place because, because this is a time for, this is the destination, and I'm a Christian. It should be a good, no. It's never been designed to be such. So when it doesn't happen, what happens? We're frustrated with life, but so many of us with God. We just get frustrated. The reality is this is a very broken, uncomfortable world. And ever since the fall of man, we've been told that's the way it should be. That's the way it is going to be. It's going to change, but it's not to be that comfortable destination. Question number two, I think important to ask. Does waiting merely mean enduring a painful world? The answer to that is no. It's not just, okay, let's endure. It's a painful world. We said, God said it would be, okay, in this world there will be tri tribulation. So, okay, it is, and let's just hang on. One day it ends, and we'll be in a good place. That's not how it's expected to be. You see, the truth of it is, we're not just waiting for Jesus to return. Hear this. We're not just waiting for Jesus to return. We're waiting for something until Jesus returns. And there are a lot of us, even as Christians, much less those that are here as seekers, that would never know, oh, there's something we should be waiting on right now beyond Jesus coming back? Absolutely. Which takes us to question number three. What should we be waiting for until Jesus comes? What's the answer to that question? Well, it's a, a promised taste and it's taste of glory. People of this church, they, they hear me talking all the time about glory. I've written even a little book, a very small book. I think it's the most important topic I could ever even address. It's glory. And Christian after Christian after Christian says, what are you talking about glory? I don't know what you're talking about. What is glory? What is glory? Well, it's renown. It's splendor. And it's something that God says, certainly he gets, and it's, he rightly has glory. But he says, look, I will give you an ever-increasing glory. And Christians go, I don't even know what you're talking about. This little book, by the way, I will be happy to give as a gift to anybody who is one of our guests who would say, I really want to understand this. Because in the few minutes here, can't really explain it very well. But it is renown and it is splendor. And hear this, it is the source of satisfaction. The more glory you learn to take in in this life, the more satisfied you become with life. The less glory, the more frustrating, the harder, the more difficult. No doubt about that. We are told that God gave us glory when we began in this world as our foreparents. But that glory has been stripped away and we're in a search for glory and eventually we find glory. And you know what? Jesus in Colossians 1 is called the hope of glory. And that's that first taste but it's not the last taste. We can have what Paul calls in, to the Corinthians an ever-increasing glory. And that's that taste of glory and taste of glory and taste of glory that keeps us satisfied while living on this earth until the very end, full glory.
If you only read the first 20 pages of this book, it's the story of glory. And you'll see everything that we're talking about there. But know this, it means that we can be satisfied now when we're in an uncomfortable preparation for a comfortable destination. Last question, how do we get these tastes of glory? And so kids, I'm not playing a game this year as I normally do. We didn't do it last year, but for years and years we've played games. Some of you remember that. And if you can answer and remember something that I say, then you, you get a little gift if you're called up here. And then I encourage the parents, you give a gift to, to your kid if they can remember. If your parents are good parents, they're going to do this with you. <laughs> they're going to ask you, can you remember the two statements that I'm about to make? You remember them and you should get something. All right? You should get something good. I don't care if the parents hate me, you'll like me, kids. That's good. <laughs> Here it is. Truth remembered, heart surrendered. If you can remember those two, that is the recipe. That truly is the recipe for satisfaction. Not just one without the other, but both have to come together. So in closing... It's remembering the truth. What, what truth do we remember? Remember the truth about the present. It's not a comfortable designation. You've got to know that. Remember the truth about Jesus. He is the hope of glory. You're not going to find it anywhere else. The other counterfeits. You'll find it in Jesus. And thirdly, the truth about glory. It really does bring satisfaction. And all that other stuff, you watch. Kids, it will not bring you satisfaction. It's only that glory. So there's the truth to be remembered. Now, how about the heart surrendered? Well, surrender your heart, meaning just ask Jesus. I invite you all, even as I close now, would you just ask Jesus, will you be my hope of glory? I invite you to be. It is my pledge of intention for you to be. And then just wait. And see if you don't get a taste, a wonderful taste of glory. And then you'll take another taste. And you'll want another taste. And I will predict it won't be long. You're going to be really satisfied. Even though this world may not give you anything good, you watch if you're not satisfied until you find yourself saying, Lord, I really am eager to see you come back. That's the story of Christmas. It is the story of glory. As we pray together, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we would ask that you would grant even now, grant that you would answer this one prayer that we pray. On this Christmas Eve, would you be my hope of glory? And I invite you to be that now. And it is my pledge of intention to seek you as my only hope of glory. Grant that particularly to these kids that I may grow up remembering the truth with a surrendered heart. And may they know satisfaction through the days of their life, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. 
Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.